0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. He knew that they're going to struggle with a variety of trials. Isn't it, isn't it great that he said various trials? What if he just said, Those of you who are struggling with persecution, those of you who are struggling with Financial problems. Those of you who are struggling with raising kids. Those of you that are struggling with infertility. Well, you'd look at those four and say, "Well, none of those apply to me. So I don't have this. The passage doesn't apply to me." Fortunately, in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, James just said, "Various trials." That includes all of us. So he knew that his people would face those trials and that they needed to trust God in all the difficulties that they face. And so he began his letter, Count it All Joy, when you meet various trials. We talked about it a few weeks ago, you might remember. <clears throat> Probably not. James is not teaching his readers to pretend that what they are going through is all... Fun and games. It's not a woohoo, I've got another trial coming my way. I'm going to count it all joy. He's not saying also that, that we cannot or should not be sad over our trials or even angry. Count it all joy is not just some flippant response that we have to our trials or the trials of other people. Come to a place where we can count it all joy. Many of you struggle with this. It's a wrestling match, isn't it? Count it all joy in our trials. It's just a, it's a wrestling match. We see that in Paul, the Apostle Paul's life. He struggles with the trials he has. He goes to the Lord in prayer. We see that in Jesus, spending time away in prayer, wrestling with matters. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane. We wrestle in prayer to choose to trust God's character and God's presence in the midst of everything that we face. Because in this life, trials are a guarantee. And for believers... James is writing to believers. For believers, we are assured that not only the normal trials of life are a guarantee, but trials because of our faith are a guarantee as well. He knows it's a testing because he says there in verse 3, the testing of your faith. He knows it's a wrestling. Choosing to trust God in a situation that does not... Automatically lead to some sort of response, some immediate response. So James encourages his readers' faith. He reminds them of the end point. What's the end point? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's the end game. Your situation, your circumstance is not the final word for you. We don't see specifically what God's going to do in the matter. But we're reminded to let God work. We can count on Him. We can hand over everything that we're going through to Him. He'll use this difficult circumstance. He'll use even the tragic circumstances to bring us to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We're counting on God to be the final word in the middle of this process. And then he says, as we count on on the character of God, we actually go to Him, we ask for wisdom. And He gives it to those who believe. He's the one we're counting on to provide wisdom in the middle of our trial. Why would we need wisdom? So we could actually see it from his perspective. We we, we ask for wisdom so that we might act in a godly way with regard to our trial. Of course, we wrestle, we fight, we hopefully find rest in god and valuable for us to know that enjoying life is not the same this is very important it's so valuable for us to understand that enjoying life count it all joy enjoying life is not the same as knowing God in the midst of it. That's the key to Christian life. Not enjoying all the varieties of life, not even counting all joy in the middle of your trial, but enjoying God in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your struggle. And every day we need to turn it over to Him again and again and again. And we find that what we read in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And we see why life struggles are a problem in verses 7 and 8. We're double-minded people. We're unstable as a result. We trust ourselves instead of trusting in God. Or we say we trust in God and we still trust ourselves. Or there's some combination of both. We're just double-minded in these matters. And because of that, there's no way we can receive what God's able to supply. It's hard to receive God's gift with our fists closed around what we're hanging on to. We'd much rather count on ourselves. We much rather count on our own ability. We much rather count on our own affluence to make it right. So, James is saying seeing it from God's perspective, experiencing God's character in this, help us to see how to be faithful and trustworthy and, and, and seeing how good He is in, in the middle of it all. And telling his readers, which includes us, of God's character, he's telling us that God's not double-minded about this. You are, but God's not. We can give up our double-mindedness as we see it one way with the wisdom that he brings. He gives generously to all. Not sometimes to some, but generously to all. And James is going to come back to this section, uh, this thought, a couple of times as we go through this letter. Now he speaks of those who are poor and those who are rich. Look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. some other idea, but it's not a new idea. It's connected to trials. He's saying that when we face various trials, it'll be most helpful if we can see it from God's perspective. He just used this as his illustration, rich and poor. Because if you, if you stop there, if you go to verse 8, And skip to verse 12. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. You could just skip 9, 10, and 11. Thinks he just stuck that in for some funny reason. But no, he stops to give us an illustration. Preachers do that from time to time, you know. I skip most of mine because I don't have time. we have heavenly wisdom, then we'll consider our status in life, rich or poor. In a way that's different from the world. Now he returns to this this theme in the next chapter, uh, verses five and six of chapter two. Listen, my beloved brother, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? And he goes on. By chapter five he issues this stern warning to the rich regarding wages. We'll get to that later. So he's telling both the poor and the rich to look at their situation. That in, that that that's right and radical. It was radical in that day, and it's radical even today. The, the writer of Proverbs suggested how radical it is in Proverbs thirty-eight and nine. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. That's really all that James is saying in a couple of verses, but I've got a little bit more to say. Look at your situation in light of God's big picture. We need wisdom for that. Could be. We don't don't know, but James may have been familiar with his brother's words in Matthew 6. He's, he wasn't an apostle. He wasn't a, a follower of his brother. He, he came to faith later. We don't know exactly when, but he could be familiar. The fact that his brother said these words, Do not lay up tre- for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heather, heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. That's, that's radical thinking. The world thinks that way. Hey, let's, let's lay it up. Let's save it for a rainy day. Save for retirement. That's how it's supposed to be. And Jesus comes in and messes with all that. Do not lay up treasure on earth. And then James adds to some of that thinking as well. He first talks about the poor in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. We've got these paradoxes. Let the lowly brother... boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation the beginning at verse 10 webster defines paradox as a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense and yet is perhaps true we we see that throughout scripture the great paradoxes of scripture giving is receiving The weak are strong, the empty are full, the slave is free, the cursed are blessed. Death brings life. All throughout Scripture we see that. G.K. Chesterton gave this definition of a paradox. A paradox is truth standing on its head shouting for attention. Kent Hughes uh, amplified that a little bit. He says, In my mind's eye... I see truths lined up like ridiculous people on their heads, feet waving in the air, calling, hey, look at me, up is down, down is up, think about it. Paradise is a powerful vehicle for truth because it makes people think. And that's what he's doing here. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich brother in his humiliation. He's concerned that his readers, that are overwhelmed with life, not succumb to instability. He resorted to a paradox. Humble—the the word "humble" or means "lowly." Some of your translations use that word. In James' day, poverty was an issue. There was no middle class back then like we have today. They were either very poor or there were a few very rich. And a large majority of the early Christian church was made up significantly of the poor, the very poor. And I... I don't mind going on record as saying that we'd be much more effective as the church of Jesus Christ if we were poor. The church is impotent because of our affluence, and that's a sad thing. Also, my mindset today, and probably should be yours too, is that none of us fits into the poor category, as James is thinking. I know you're worried about making your house payment. You're worried about not going into debt because you're buying all those stupid Christmas presents. You have hospital bills. may even go so far as to say you, you might be having your house foreclosed on. I've been to Haiti. You're not poor. Nobody in this room. Trust me. And there's no question that in the history of the church, the church has grown most among the poor. Church doesn't grow among the rich. Wealthy Western Europe, the church is dead. America's about 10 or 15 years behind, but I'll, I'll stick my neck out and say that the church in America is dead. We just have enough affluence to look like we're alive. Churches growing among the poor in China, in Korea. You know in Dubai, a, a Muslim country where they're building those those humongous high-rises, those amazing buildings. A, a Muslim con- country, if, if if you're not a resident of that country, you you can have a church. And the poor Filipino laborers that are building all those buildings, the church is growing there. Latin America, among the poor, the church is growing. Why? Why could that be? Why does a church only grow among the poor? Well, we've been given the answer to that question because it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Affluence is an enormous barrier. Paul talked about this in talking to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, "...for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are." So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And the different translations of this, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. That's the ESV. The New American Standard says, glory in your high position. The NIV says, take pride in your high position. The New Revised Standard Version says, boast in being raised up. The one who is low, the one who is poor uh, with regard to social status, can boast in being high. He's not speaking of health and wealth. He's not saying, pray for, verse 5, pray For wisdom, and God will give that, and you'll find yourself wealthy. God will fix your poverty. This is not prosperity theology. If you do this, pray. Pray for God's wisdom. You'll become rich. The teaching of Scripture is exactly the opposite of that. And I can take it further. I know people who walk in this direction. For those who boast of a healing prayer ministry, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for healing. I know God can heal. I know God uses the prayers of His people for healing. I'm saying that it's not always God's will that you be healed until His purpose for that sickness has been fulfilled in your life. With your poverty as well, if you were. James is not saying if you do this, you'll become rich. He's saying that if you do this, you'll realize that you are rich. Hard to make ends meet. You're rich. You don't know what debt I'm in. You're rich. My family has never gone to Disney World. You're rich. I drive a 1999 Crown Victoria, but I'm rich. Alistair Begg said something I think is very true. Not only have some of us Americans wrapped our flag around the cross, we've wrapped dollar bills around the cross. And James reminds us again. Been the case in many, many other places in the New Testament. No. No, that way is false. So the person on the lowest rung of the ladder should be glad, count it all joy of their high position. What? The high position? My personal finances? I'm poor. My status in society, which is nothing my ability to make changes in my status in society, which is nothing. Poor saying, I don't have a high position. But in view, he's talking to believers, in view, in light of the glorious riches that you have in Jesus Christ, this person on the lowest rung of the ladder has the higher position than the one who's rich. And we're in trials Tempting to look around and compare ourselves to others. Tempted to believe that some people don't have any trials. Their lives look so easy. Well, one of the reasons is sometimes we only see each other at church and we put on our church face and we take a bath before we come and, you know, those sorts of things. That we clean up pretty good. We're able to, we can fake each other out. Especially poor, though, with rich and poor when we compare ourselves in such a way. That's why James chose this illustration. Poor, look at those who are rich. Believe that they're getting off easy. James tells the lower brother, boast in your exaltation, which exceeds that of wealth. Interesting. Interesting. I wonder if these poor, he's writing to, and he's writing to us as well, thought they had nothing to boast in. The context, I think, goes back to verse 4 again, where he says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is your exaltation. One day you will be perfect. One day you'll be complete. There is hope in your life. You have something to look for. But it's not just then, that's not the exaltation that you can completely boast in. It's not, it's not just then, it's because of Christ in your life today that you can boast in your exaltation. The lowly today in receiving the grace of God have riches untold that far exceeds their current earthly financial condition. Okay, that's the poor. Let's talk about us a minute. What about the rich? And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, the flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is the part of the passage that applies to you and me. Poor, take pride in your high position. Rich, take pride in your low position. The rich brother, and he's talking to Christians here, remember, boast in his humiliation. Uh, here, here's the, some of the translations. I think these translations are helpful for us to see. New American Standard, the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. The NIV the, the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. Revised Standard says the the rich in being brought low. Poor boast in being high. Rich boast in being low. Now, he doesn't say that there's anything wrong with being poor. You notice that? I'm sorry you have a terrible life. No, he doesn't say that. He takes for granted what? Again, what his brother said, the poor will always be with you. He doesn't say being rich is not a good thing either. He's not advocating some socialist idea that being poor is bad and being rich is bad and so somehow we've got to equalize it all. He's not making that sort of statement. He's just acknowledging that both of those People are a fact of life. Since they are a fact of life, your godly perspective in each occasion, the status of your life is the most important thing. How do you see it? As far as we know, the only thing that's wrong with wealth is when our wealth is misused. true for every single one of us today. Since I'm saying we're all falling to the rich category, if you're having financial problems, it's most likely because of misuse of your wealth. If you're not having financial problems and you've got a surplus, that's, that's due to misuse of your wealth as well the misuse that makes it a problem. More specifically, what James is saying here is that as believers, the problem is our dependence on our wealth. We are to boast in our humiliation, our low position. That's the godly wisdom James is talking about here. Don't depend on your wealth. And he's not talking about wealth that fades away. He, when he says, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away, it's not the wealth that will fade away. It's the rich man. Like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, beauty, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits some of us miss the point you read some commentaries that just missed that completely the rich person that he's talking about you're frail all of us are frail your wealth won't buy you out of anything now your wealth might buy you better health care and give you a few more days of life than me It won't buy you that. Jesus said, A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Ultimately, our affluence cannot do anything of significance for us because we'll all fade away. All the money in the world won't stop it. Fool's wisdom trusts in his affluence. Why? Because you can buy yourself out of anything with all that we have. You can buy yourself out of anything here on earth. And we con- condition ourselves, it becomes a barrier to our relationship with God. We condition ourselves that we can continue to do that on and on and on. But it doesn't. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, though also the rich man fades away. If I could take a little side road here, it talks about the flower, the wild flower. James, you'll notice he uses a lot of illustrations of nature throughout James. He we've already talked of just in this chapter, the wave of the sea, the flower of the grass. And Pastor Greg talked last week about fishing. That when he when he used the term lured and enticed in verse 14, he talks about the birth process in verse 15. We talked about conception and birth, and on throughout the entire book, he uses more natural illustrations. Scripture speaks of this. Short earthly existence as well. A flower of the field that wilts and is gone. Job 14. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. Psalm 103, verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. Isaiah 40. A voice says, Cry. And I say, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. James 4. That you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist. It appears for a little time and then it vanishes. Life is here and it's gone just like that. That's depressing, isn't it? But it's true in light of eternity. Trials serve to remind the rich that though they are comfortable in this life it's still only this life fades like as the grass grows brown and the flowers fade away. The early readers of this letter understood that more than we do on the east coast of the U.S. because they had a climate that was like that. These these beautiful flowers would... Spring to life. You see this in California. Some would spring to life, when the rains come, and then, short time, some hot wind would blow, and they'd go away, just like that. Is that called Scirocco winds? Or... The rich man fades away in his pursuit as well. You know, you know these things. You've grown up in the church. You 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 know that. These truths, and it's, it's so easy to talk about. There's nothing exciting when you talk about these things, but it's hard to practice. Paul addressed Timothy about this toward the end of First uh, Timothy, First Timothy six. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, that you may take hold of that which is truly life. The wisdom that you pray for that we saw in verse 5 throughout all the trials of life so that we might get God's perspective in the matter that our riches can't save us. Particularly timely, in a, when you're talking about this, and the wealthiest nation of the world, and according to the stock market, the wealthiest time in history. The enemy knows where to hit us, right? The enemy knows how much we trust in our wealth and nothing else. They flew those planes into the World Trade Center in the financial district for a reason. Our wealth and even our lives can be taken for us in a tragic instant. We need to endure. We need to be preoccupied. With the things that help us endure beyond this life, and so there's a there's a sense that the the poor brother is more spiritually wealthy than the rich man, because the poor man's on his knees praying for his day. How, how many times have you prayed, those of you that are wealthy, which like I say applies to all of us? How many times have you prayed? every day give us this day our daily bread really not knowing where your bread was coming from or the next meal. We just go buy it with our hard-earned money. We don't need God to give us our daily bread. The wealthy brother should take pride in his low position knowing that his time on earth is short and death strips us away. All that earthly wealth and once dead i'll be no more wealthier than the poor guy but we all have trials God allows us to go through we live in a broken world trials are inevitable it won't help us to compare ourselves to others it's tempting to but it won't help. focus only on God's faithful and gracious presence and work in our lives in the midst of all our trials. And James seems to be saying that trials erase all the superficial differences that you may think separate a rich man from a poor man. The good news is that James wants us to grasp That God can be God to all of us in the middle of whatever we're facing. There's no pit lower than God's presence can reach. He doesn't allow us to go through anything that He can't redeem and heal and use to bring us to fullness in Him. I don't need to compare, because in each trial, big or small, we all need to grow by God's grace to trust Him completely. That's really what James is teaching. Linsky said, as the poor brother forgets all his earthly poverty, so the rich brother forgets all his earthly riches. By faith in Christ, the two are equals. quickly conclude I know we're out of time and he concludes his section on trials blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial but when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him let's just take each phrase blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial it's the same word same blessed uh, makarios the same word that's used in the beatitudes And it doesn't translate simply as happy. The secular translation of that is the transcendent transcendent happiness of life beyond care, labor, and death. And in in biblical usage, it's a distinctive religious joy. It's not happy, happy, happy. The prosperity preachers twist this verse. Note: blessedness is not a result of the absence of trial. Blessed are those who don't have trials. Everybody has trials, and he's not saying that blessedness has come from the because of the presence of trials. Oh, you're going to grow. Yeah, you're, presence of trials, you got trials in your life, but rather, blessed are those who persevere, who endure the trials. Remember, we talk about that word steadfastness being patient endurance. God never promises to end our struggle, but He does promise to reward those who endure them faithfully. Second phrase, for when He has stood the test, He will receive the crown of life. Stood the test means approved. New American standard. For once He has been approved, received the crown of life. That's the image. That's the laurel crown. That's the athletic Symbol there of the victor in the athletic field. Christian must strive to, to complete the race and, therefore, and, and thereby receive the crown of life. And in this case, the crown is eternal life. Those who endure will be blessed with a kind of life beyond anything we could possibly imagine. James is clear those who faithfully endure trials God rewards. And there's a final phrase here which God has promised to those who love Him. Now before you think that's works righteousness salvation by works oh the more I love God the more God will give me the crown of life. We've got to remember John's words. We love Because He first loved us. You love because of His redemptive love. The love that offered up His Son on the cross in your place. He loved you in Christ before you could ever love. Until you've said yes to what He's done for you and repented of your sin, you cannot love and therefore will never receive the crown of life, the victor's crown. On the other side, if you're a true believer, you love God and He's made His promise. That will cause you to look beyond your trials the life of hope. Jesus said in in Revelation 2, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. And you, those who are faithful, when your end comes, you stand before God as mature Christians. Why are you mature? Because you've endured through the trials. You stand as mature believers, strengthened by every trial, by His grace that long last will be as Christ-like as we can be. Christ-like as we have striven throughout this life, then we'll be crowned with the crown of life, endless life, life without trials, life without temptations, eternal life. Isn't that worth the struggles that we go through today? Verse 12 seems to fit well with the Thomas Watson quote I shared with you a couple of weeks ago. Watson says, Whatever trouble in this life a child of God meets with, it's all the hell he'll ever have. If you're a believer, if you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever trial you face here on earth, it's all the hell you'll ever experience. And that's that's cause enough for joy. So you have good, many good reasons to count it all joy. That said, if you don't love God because He first loved you with that redemptive love in Christ, hell is real, hell is eternal, hell is hot. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe. Thank you, Father, for the gift of your word. We pray that you would take the feeble words of this preacher and yet cause the truth of your word to pierce our hearts and minds and bring about change in our lives in such a way. That we'll see all the trials of life from your perspective. We'll see them in a godly way. We'll see them with the wisdom that can only come from you. So God, do your work in us and through us. Cause us even now to take a stand as those that are truly rich, rich financially, to be rich in you to realize what we have in you. For those of us that don't know you, we might say yes to you even today, even this very moment. For your glory and your glory alone. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.